So this actual class is looking at conservative or liberal churches, uh, depending on where you fall on the spectrum, uh, and winners and losers. Now, I know that that might sound very cruel, uh, like we're judging churches by who wins and who loses, like this is the NBA Finals or something. Uh, hopefully my Rockets win because Chris Paul is there. <laughs> but in the church, there are no direct winners or losers necessarily, but in some cases what we find is our methodologies get in the way of our effectiveness. And so I want us to kind of look through this and kind of, you know, explore this and there'll be some interaction. I want to make sure and leave some time for questions and comments and just some things that you guys will do together. But as we're getting started, I kind of want to define some terms first. So when I talk about conservative, uh, we're looking at someone who holds to traditional attitudes and values and is cautious about change uh, or innovation, typically in relation to politics or religion. So this might be a person who is adverse to change and who holds traditional values, attitudes, typically, as again I said, in relation to politics and religion. Uh, when we talk about someone who's liberal, I see the definitions are a lot shorter, but it's someone who's open to new behavior or opinions and willing to, dis uh, to discard traditional values. Now, uh, I'm doing this in a sense is because personally I believe that oftentimes we use these terms to describe things about churches that don't adequately, adequately describe what's really going on. So we make these assumptions or we see certain programs and we say, well, that's a liberal church or that's a conservative church. Or if those terms don't fit for you, we say, you know, that's more traditional, more fundamental, or that church is more progressive or more open to change. And what we're describing are things that we see on the surface. And we don't necessarily understand why a certain church might be more on one side or the other. And oftentimes that language actually hurts more than it helps. Because there are churches that might be liberal in certain areas and very conservative in others, and vice versa. And so we have to be willing to explore what we really mean when we make those statements and make those, gener uh, those generalities about certain churches. And so I want us to explore that together today. And so what makes a church liberal or progressive or conservative or, or traditional? And this is a chance where you can actually respond. So I have a few things on here. So. Obviously, sometimes it's the programming, and what I mean by program, so any ministry, sub-ministry, event that you do at your church, that might be something that someone might use to categorize you as being more progressive. Maybe, maybe it's the preaching, the teaching, the way, the style, the additional things you use in your service. Maybe you're using PowerPoint, and for some people that's just too much. Or maybe you've taken the lyrics down. If you're in the Church of Christ, you know, you took the song, you took down the notes, and you just decide to go screens with just words and somebody <laughs> lost it, you know, you know. So maybe you print like 10 of them and put them in the back just to help those people out who just can't sing without the written word. Maybe that's your my church, not yours. Maybe it's theological beliefs. You know, you have a couple people who went to school or who just happened to have some other experiences so they see the world, the Bible, God differently. And so we consider them different. Uh, maybe it's community focus or community engagement. Maybe the community around you is changing and so your church decided to adapt. And all the other churches, because their community hasn't changed as rapidly, it's that church over there is progressive. Or that church over there is very conservative. Or maybe it's just experience. And what I mean by that is that sometimes life just happens. And things that we've held dear or that we've always held on to, once it became a part of my story or somebody that was close to me, I had to rethink that. So I held this view or I held a certain position for a very long time until it went from being an issue over there to an issue that was right here. And in many cases, those are real things. So how do you deal with marriage and divorce in a church? Well, it's a lot easier when it's not you. 
But then when it's somebody close to you and you know the circumstances around that relationship, sometimes we've said things to hold on to certain things that were actually very detrimental to people in bad relationships. And thankfully, other churches have decided, you know what, maybe there's, there is some grace that can cover some of these things. And so you get labeled as, or maybe you just have that radical staff member or that radical leader who's like at every conference and he's like, comes back and he's like, or she comes back and we need to do this. Or they read every Andy Stanley book and they think that your church needs to be North Point or Saddleback. Maybe you have one of those or whatever else. Is there anything else that I'm missing possibly? Yes. That's true, very much. Yes, thank you very much. So thank you very much. Anyone else? I say sometimes it's a cultural thing as well. Mm, yeah. Yes, very much so. Yes, culture plays a big part of that. Yes. Right, yeah. Some location, you know, I mean, what might be a conservative church in one area might be a liberal church in a different part of the country. That's so true. No, you're 100% right. You're complete. And that's part of why we're doing this. So, so we understand that, well, that church might be liberal in, you know, in Texas, but in New York, that's just normal. Like, we wouldn't think twice about that. And so oftentimes when we start using these labels, we don't understand exactly what we're always communicating to the person who's hearing it. Mm-hmm. And we have to be careful of that because sometimes we're communicating something and they think that there's more to the picture when there might not be. So it's like, oh, they have a praise team. Tell me more about what you like. Is that a good thing, a bad thing? Depending on if I can't necessarily read how you were saying it, I'm going to make an assumption possibly. And you might have been like, oh, this is no big deal. It's a praise team for somebody else. That might have been like, I don't know. And depending on where I am, that might be like, oh, well, no big deal. And if you've ever been a minister and you had that person who came to you talking about something that was like a big deal to them and you were like, that's it. But you can't say that to them. <laughs> and in their mind, it's like, you know, it was like they didn't throw the Bible out. Like, what are you tripping over? But for them, you know, the fact that, you know, somehow the bread got skipped, you know, and the juice went first. It's World War Three in the church. But we have to begin to think through these terminology, through this terminology. And so what I want us to do is to look at this pyramid uh, that we're going to develop and we're going to build. And so, uh, oh, and actually, let me kind of give you some clarification on this. So this is part of a a deeper research project that I'm doing. So I'm using you all as kind of like guinea pigs. If I end up making this into a book or a dissertation, you will get zero credit. Uh, Just so you know, so no royalties coming to any of you. But I will appreciate your input and all the good things that you say and do. So when we talk about programming, what I mean when I say programming is specifically this. So this is you know, a set of related measures, events, or activities with a particular long-term aim. So this is what we do as a church. So this is your worship service. This is any ministry or sub-ministry you might have, any event that goes on at your church. Oftentimes, this is what we see, and this is where the bulk of what we do stands. So when oftentimes we're making classification whether a church is liberal or conservative, it's based on what we saw program-wise, what was either advertised, what's on their website, what we saw in the bulletin when we went there, or what someone else said about them, about some event, and it's like, oh, well, they must be very whatever. 
you know, they don't do this or they do this. This is where they must be on the spectrum. And oftentimes when we do that, we are negating a lot of other things that go on that shape that. No program at any church exists just for the sake of the program. There, it might now, but it didn't always end up that way. You know, every once in a while we have programs that somebody needs to kill or somebody wants to kill and nobody remembers how they got started. But we make up this something that if we do it, somebody's going to get upset and nobody knows who that someone is. So don't worry about that. But every program at one time had a function. It had something to do and we had a reason of how we got there. But before there was that program, there was a system in place to sustain the program. Now, this is key in talking about church systems because every church system has certain things that it's designed to do and certain things it's designed not to do. And rarely are we aware of the systems that perpetuate our programming. So I want you to be honest about your church and when you're thinking about this, as we're going to have some conversations later, but I want you to think about your church systems. Because oftentimes in church systems, we can say we want certain outcomes, but our system says that that's really not the outcome we want. So I remember being at a church and I was doing some work with them and doing some consulting type things and they were talking about making some major changes uh, for them. And what they couldn't realize is why they couldn't get to that change program wise. Only to be constantly running into what they felt was a brick wall and all this frustration. But what they didn't want to deal with was the system that was actually preventing it. Sometimes when I talk to people in other churches when I'm doing some work, it's always this common thing is how do we get people to stop complaining in our church? How do we get people? And one of the things I have to tell them is that oftentimes the reason why people complain in your church is because your system rewards their bad behavior. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the reason why things are the way they are in our church is not just because our programming, it's because the system perpetuates the program. So they learn to get, the, get what they want by complaining because you respond to them complaining. If you stop responding to them complaining, they'll stop complaining. But as long as you give them attention and they end up getting what they want at the end, they recognize that my complaining fills the need that I have. So until you stop taking it in and you stop listening to them and you stop doing what they want, then they're going to keep doing it because it gets the result. But oftentimes we're not aware of the systems that impact the program. Mm -hmm. But even on top of that, there's something else there. And this is what I mean by system, a set of connected things or parts forming a complex whole. So how we do what we do. But after you get past there, there's these things called values. Now this is, this is really deep in church culture. And oftentimes we're not even sure of all of our values. Because oftentimes we might not even be aware of the systems, but we're very rarely are we aware of the values. Now, if you work on the church staff or you might be an elder or if you're that lady in the church who really makes all the decisions, but nobody knows that you make all decisions because that's in every church. Let me just be honest. We might not have a lot of women elders, but we have women who really run the church. Everybody knows that there's that woman that if you didn't talk to her, she will cause a mutiny and you will lose the battle every time. Because everybody loves her and everybody respects her. She's there. So if you're a new minister, you need to find her. She's really, she might be the person working in the office behind the secretary desk and she knows everybody's business. But you need to find her. 
And no matter what the elders say, if she's happy, you will be okay. She is your job security. But in terms of values, there are things that we value in our churches that oftentimes don't even correlate with the system or the programming. And let me give you an example. So, uh, and many times in Church of Christ, we had a set of values, at least that we conveyed. Right? So, one of the things that we always said that we valued was we valued Scripture. That's what we would always say. We value the Word of God. But what we didn't always say with that is that we value a certain interpretation of the Word of God. We value a certain way of seeing the Word of God. Or we value certain parts of the Word of God. But here, let me give you a clue. Every other Christian group values the Word of God. We weren't special in that. That wasn't a unique quality that we the only people who did it. We just had a certain slant on it. And because we didn't really flesh that out, we ended up losing some of the value that we so-called had. We started making decisions that had nothing to do with the value of Scripture, but values that then worked their way into fulfilling certain systems and programs. And so I would ask you to, if you go back to your church, to look at some of the things that still go on and see if they really do fit your original values. Or have you actually gotten away from fulfilling the values? Do you even know what they are anymore? Or are you just a program-centric church that just keeps doing things and you have no idea as to why we're doing these anymore? And so you're a conservative church or liberal church and you don't even know why. We don't even know what the point is. And what I mean by values is strictly this. A person's principles or standards of behavior. One's judgment of what is important in life. Why we do what we do. The why is important. Understanding why matters. It's not just about getting something done or fulfilling something. It's about understanding the why. And why is a hard question to answer as a church. Because it's a lot easier to do stuff than to figure out why we should do stuff. Because also figuring out why we should do stuff means that you have to do the opposite of that. Figure out why we should not do stuff. And that causes people problems. And churches don't like conflict because we should all get together and we should all be one. And, you know, Paul wanted everything to be unity, not uniformity, but unity. Let's be clear. So we have to deal with this. And so I want us to look at a couple of these things. So conservative, traditional, liberal, progressive. Now, I put these on here in a certain way, and I don't necessarily mean that they actually stick under the categories that they're in. But oftentimes we talk about them in these ways. So the conservative is concerned with salvation. Does that mean the liberal or progressive isn't? Does that mean that the liberal or progressive, because they care about forgiveness, that the conservative doesn't? But oftentimes we talk about things in certain ways that they form these false dichotomies about certain people and certain churches because the way we talk about them, we highlight a certain aspect of it. And then we imply that because they value this, well, that means they really don't value this as much. And so we've shaped the identity of a church, and they didn't get a say in it, and they didn't get a response to it. Or our shaping of it was really bad. So does it mean that because you have more of a head understanding that you're just heartless? 
Is that automatically the way the correlation works? Can you be both? Can you prioritize both doctrine and people? Is it possible? Is it possible that you care about transformation and grace, but at the same time, you care about making sure that you get the pattern right and that you see certain things in Scripture as being prescriptive and not everything's just up for interpretation? Is it possible to be both? Or more than one? Or to be both and? Or does it mean that you have to live into these dichotomies Whereas if you decide to take this part of it, you just have to take everything else that goes with it. Mm. And the reason why I'm saying this is because oftentimes, not even just in church language, but our normal language of society, we draw these dichotomies in such a way that we assume that if you pick one of these, you have to pick everything else that goes on that side. And that's dangerous. And not only is it dangerous, but it doesn't leave room for basic human rationale and human thinking. Nobody is specifically one thing. We are complex people. We live in complex systems. Our churches are complex. And people are a variety of all these things. And our churches are a variety of all these things. And we have to be willing to admit that. And we also have to be willing to celebrate that and begin to understand the differences within it. Because if not, we'll begin to say, well, then every conservative who believes that salvation is important just sticks to the stuff over here. And they don't care about any of these things. They're not for justice. Well, they never said that. We just assumed that. Because we made a dichotomy that says that they're just supposed to take everything over here. Every liberal, you know, they just want to feel good and they don't want any real truth. They just want to have a great spiritual experience. That's not always the case. That's not true. That's just painting with a broad brush and putting people in categories that they didn't sign up for. And so what I think is actually what's going on here is that we have a telos problem. Now, I know this might seem strange. And for those of you, you know, who are wondering, like, what is that? We're going to define that. So where are my little graduate degree people in here? Because I know there's always a couple. <laughs> oh, now y'all want to be quiet. <laughs> I'm going to find y'all professors and tell them y'all missed this on systematics. No. So, tell us. Basically, it just means the end, the aim, the goal. That's basically what it is. And so we're going to go with a simple definition of this. So it's the ultimate objective or aim. The goal of why we do what we do. So this is all about what we are actually at the baseline trying to accomplish. The tell us. It's the final you know, goal of what we're trying to achieve. And so, teleology or teleology, however you decide to pronounce it, it's the reason or explanation for something in its function, in its end, its purpose or goal. So it's derived from two basic Greek words, logos and telos. So basically, it's the reason as to why we end up with the final condition that we end up in. And I believe this is why we have a problem when it talks about conservative and liberal in terms of our church language. Because we really don't understand what it is we're trying to get at at the end. And our end goals happen to be different. And to kind of explore this and to kind of lay this out, I want us to do a quick little exercise. So we're going to do an exercise in teleological hermeneutics. So we're going to look at the canon within the canon. Anybody know what I mean when I say that? Great. <laughs> well, here, let me tell you something really quickly. Everybody has a canon within the canon. So how many books are in the Bible? 
Oh my goodness, y'all heard me. Alexander Campbell will roll over his grave. Basically what this means, you know, so the 66 books in the Bible, we do not hold all 66 books with equal weight. Right? When's the last time you heard a sermon series through Jude? Anybody remember? There you go. See? Exactly. We don't hold our books the same value. Habakkuk doesn't get as much attention as John the, John's gospel. Right? You know? So, what that means is, even though we say we value all scripture, which I think we do, we don't value it all equal weight. There are some things we prioritize over others. So, what I want you to do is I want you to spend some time thinking through this question. So, I'm going to give you about two minutes to think this on your own. So, the question is, if you had to reduce the entire Bible to four books, which ones would you choose and why? So, if you had to, if this was the only parts of the Bible that you had left, let's say every Bible was destroyed and you got these four books and you had to go around evangelizing the rest of the world, which four books are you picking and why? So, after you pick those books, now I know some of you scholars in here are like, I already got mine. Matthew, Romans, you know. <laughs> Hopefully, you'll throw a little bit of Old Testament in there somewhere. But, you know, this is your list. Do you. So I want you to figure out what it is. I'm going to give you two minutes to kind of figure that out. And then I'm going to have you discuss with the people around you why you pick what you pick. And then we'll go in a little deeper after that. So I'm going to give you two minutes. Figure out your list. And then once you get your list, you can turn to the person next to you. Turn around if you need to. But I need you to discuss why you picked your list. And if you don't know the person next to you, at least tell them your name, where you're from, basic stuff. <laughs> What was it? Okay, look, I will give I will give that to you. Luke Acts counts as one book. I will give you that one. Even though the Church of Christ only reads like the first fifteen chapters. I'm gonna give it to you. We stopped at fifteen. That's the count, so we're done with Acts. I'll give it to you.
couldn't do it because it's just like <laughs> 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 I picked Luke and he said not, so I put it together. So I brought it back to my all right, is everybody ready? Everybody explain why. All right, so all right, we're gonna we're gonna do this. All right, so I need three volunteers to kind of give their list. Don't make me pick you. Yeah, all this talking. All right, I need somebody on the back row. Their list. We're going to start there. Okay, let's go with your list. From the Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, and from the New, Luke, Acts, and Romans. Okay. I like that list. So Psalms, Proverbs, Luke, Acts, and Romans. All right. So, as a class, we're going to do this together. So, if this was all we had, what are some major things that would be missing? Well, how the world we got here? Yeah. We have no creation story. You're right. Perfect. If we, if we, you said what? The whole Exodus framework for redemption. The whole Exodus framework for redemption. Yes. What up? The law, the prophets. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean. But the Psalms do tell the story of creation. They do tell they do the stories of the captivity. They do tell, I mean, there's a lot of summary in there in the Psalms, too. Yeah. You don't get acapella music out of that either. I'll tell you that now. There's, there's a lot of music in there. There's a whole lot of music in there. So, what else do you get? What else do you not get? What other major things would be missing if this is the only things that you had to work with? Yes. View of heaven in Revelation. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's right. <clears throat> Anything else you can think of that's really important? I, I'm the really... letters. Wait, let's see. It's, oh, Romans is there. Okay, never mind. <laughs> yep, Romans is there. So you so get some Pauline the... theology in there. Yeah, right. right. There's some really big things that I would like. <laughs> Genesis to Revelation coming back to God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Mm -hmm. So you missed the Sermon on the Mount? Mm -hmm. The whole sermon? You get the Sermon on the Plain, but you get a very short part of Luke. You don't get as many yet because you get more teaching sections. Anything else that you guys think of? All right, so second row. We're going to do somebody else's list on the second row. Well, I, I think uh, you got to include First and Second Chronicles. 
And I know most of us that we talk here disagree, but the reason why I would do First and Second Chronicles is because it gives you the history from Adam to David in First Chronicles and Second Chronicles <coughs> the history from Solomon to the captivity, which leads you right to Luke Acts. So if you put First and Second Chronicles, Luke Acts, you've got you got to have Genesis in there in the yeah, beginning. Okay. And then that just connects everything. <laughs> so Genesis, First, Second Chronicles, and Luke Acts. Yeah, if you put the Chronicles together, you can add one more thing. You put those together, and then you've got a fourth book, which were probably Romans. Okay, Romans. That's six books there, huh? Now <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we find any way to get one. <laughs> All right, so yeah. so if you had Genesis, First and Chronicles, Luke, Acts, and Romans, what are you missing? Or what's not there? John the Revelation. You said what? John's right there. So you miss a lot of heavenly themes, definitely. Beatitudes. Beatitudes? Yep. There's not a lot of justice in there either. <laughs> you get a lot of negative perspective about women. Oh. You get that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What? Uh, no, I'm very true. I was Luke. Well, you won't get necessarily as much with Luke. You will get necessarily, you'll get a lot of history. So you'll know pretty much all the kings, both north and south, going through there. And you'll know where they died and whether they lived with their fathers or whether they were just cast aside. You'll know all that. You don't get a lot of prophetic language. I mean, so, you know, you won't. So there's definitely some things that are going to be missing. All right, somebody on this front row. We haven't had a woman's opinion yet. There's three of them here. I'm not going to pick one of you. Per I can tell my list. There we go. See, look, I like volunteers. <laughs> it's not much different, but I have um, Luke Acts, of course, and then I have James, and then I have Genesis and Psalms. Hmm, I like that list. So right. you get your history, you get your... You know, your salvation and the gospel. And then in James, you get your disciplinary type stuff. <laughs> you, <need> to <laughs> you get your practical be, 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 be practical. Does anybody see like any major hole in this one? There's not a lot of prophecy up there anyway. That's true. We don't like prophecy. We don't like <laughs> We leave that to our, you know, Where is the law? Like, anyway. Like, like, that is a lot of free will thinking right there. That is a lot of good. Liberal. Man, I'm, what? James is pretty hard. Like, I don't see Exodus, Deuteronomy, or any of these, like, there is, we just don't care about them Jews, huh? Just, mm, y'all just hurt me. Yeah, we care. I mean, I'm surprised nobody has picked Matthew at all. Like, y'all have not that far removed from Matthew 16, 16 for community. Yeah, we probably wasn't that long with the whole Luke Acts. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'll let y'all have most of y'all. You know, you know. It's true of the church. Did anybody pick James? I mean, I mean, did anybody pick John's gospel? 
I had it until uh, you lumped uh, Luke and Ash. Yeah. <laughs> I said, I can get two for, oh. Yeah. Yeah. So I want you to think, so, no, but you said you picked John, right? Yeah. So why did you pick John? Well, my Bible study is currently reading through it, and I did a study before that about, like, the I am yeah, they are, but you don't get any miracles like that in John. John, you don't have a lot of miracles, and you don't get big sections of teaching. You get a lot of conversation, a lot of dialogue, and like you say, you get the I am statements. Now, the reason why I had us do this is because whether we recognize it or not, this happens in our churches every Sunday. Every preacher has a canon within a canon. Every member in your church has a canon within a canon. There are certain texts that we run to to talk about the things that we believe are important for people to know about Jesus. And there are things that, whether we are aware of it or not, that we ignore or that we skip over. And so part of that is what shapes the way our churches exist. So depending on what your leadership decides is in their canon or what the preacher is deciding is in their canon, they are shaping the philosophy or the theological bend of that congregation. So if you get a preacher who preaches a lot of James, a lot of practical living, and very little with the prophets, we shouldn't be surprised that there's not a lot of conversations around justice and prophecy. And kind of like you were saying, like you was like, there's not a lot of prophecy up there. Well, in our Church of Christ history, we haven't done a lot with the prophets. But that's part of the reason why, because our canon within the canon didn't make that a priority. And so sometimes the reason our congregations either fall more on this side or this side has a lot less to do with our programming, but instead they're derived from our canon. And what books we decide to preach and teach from and which books we choose not to preach and teach from. But why might that be a problem that we need to really think through and deal with? That's an open question. Why might we really need to think through this? We have holes. But what's the problem with having holes? Does that have any negative consequences? Could it have any? Have we seen any? Sometimes we over-illuminate things that maybe shouldn't have so much illumination on them. And we under-look at things that we really need to be focusing on so we don't hear God in all those areas. Mm, yes, I appreciate that. Thank you. That's 100% right. She said sometimes we eliminate things or we overemphasize certain things to the point that there's a problem in there. Yes. I want to give you a really practical illustration, and some of you might have experienced this. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody, and you guys were talking about the same issue, but you just couldn't seem to get on the same page about it? Has that ever happened? Like, you were talking about, like, how come you can't just see this from my perspective? You should fix that husband of yours. <laughs> But oftentimes, what I realize in my short time on this earth is that oftentimes when we're having conversations about Christian things, especially things in Scripture, the reason why we don't see things the same is because I'm thinking through my canon, and you're thinking through your canon. Even though we're looking at the same text, I'm justifying my canon and what I've always been taught to see as most valuable. And so until I'm able to open up my canon to take in more, we're going to just keep passing each other on this conversation. And so I've watched congregations try to have really hard conversations, whether it's around instrumental music, praise, teens, whether we're going to put song lyrics up or not, 
whether we're going to do women, all those conversations that we think are really hard conversations. And they forget that we need to actually start and realize that we're going to have to have a different view of canon to have those. Trying to start with the program always ends badly. Or even if we try to start with just the system, it will end poorly. If you don't get people on the same canon, they're going to always default to their canon. And if I'm only talking out of my canon, and you're only talking out of your canon, unless our canons sync up, or somehow we just have overlap in our canon, we're going to always be talking about two different things, even though the very same thing is right in front of both of us. But, everyone believes their canon is orthodoxy. It's just natural. I believe that my canon is the right canon. Right. Why would I do it wrong? Exactly. That's exactly right. And I'm telling us this because we have to be, we have to know it. I think my canon is right. And if I'm not aware that my canon has holes in it, then I'm only going to keep fighting for my canon. And I don't fight to understand your canon. And so I label you as a progressive because I think I have truth. Or I label you a conservative and somehow I'm the one who's sane and rational. But that's why I do it, because I'm talking out of my canon. And your canon is the one that's wrong. You're seeing this wrong. You should see it the way I see it, because my canon is the right canon. But I don't tell you that I'm speaking out of my canon. I just think that you should see it the way I see it. But things have formed my canon, whether it was the way I went to church, where I went to church, what I decided to study, who taught me. All those things shaped my canon. And when I step into a conversation and I'm speaking out of my canon, I am always thinking that I am right. And that my canon is the approved and established and correct canon. And the problem isn't my canon. Yeah, you know, it's the authorized canon. It's the King James canon. It's mine. <laughs> you know, started November 22nd, 1986. That's my birthday, by the way. Which you feel free to give me a gift. <laughs> so here's what I want us to look at when it comes to talking about this thing of winners and losers. I believe the winners are the churches who are aware of their canon within the canon. They understand its benefits and its limitations. Churches who can't recognize this are the losers in this because what often happens is that we become more isolated as we're not aware of the holes in our own canon. And so many of our churches are falling into a shrinking mode or a decline mode because they don't even recognize their canon has gotten so small. And so while they're telling you that I'm standing for truth, what they're really standing for is their version of truth and their version of the canon. And everybody else is the problem. Ever been to a church like that? You might be in there. Don't raise your hand. Just pray about it. <laughs> but until we begin to see the canon is bigger and we're able to have those conversations, all I'm doing is boxing myself in and I'm putting you on the outside. Because the rules are if you want to be inside the box, you have to join my canon. 
And that was part of our philosophy as a church for a long time. And in some places still is. And we thought we were telling people you need to join the programs. But you can come in and do the programs all day. You really have to figure out how to fit into our canon. That's what really makes you a part of us. And if you start questioning the canon, then we've got a problem. We'll deal with you questioning programs. We will not tolerate you questioning the canon. We'll disfellowship you for that. <laughs> but I wanted you to think about what's really problematic with this picture. Does anybody see anything that's really problematic with this picture? No. Huh? It's uh, missing God. Oh, definitely. <laughs> that is a huge problem. Say that again. Pyramid is upside down. Mm -hmm. It's not a very stable base for your pyramid. Pyramid is going to stay on point. How many of you are in a church that might feel like this? We spent more time talking about these and then these, very little time about these, and no time explaining this. And so our church just feels very sporadic, very chaotic all the time. And everybody's like, where are we going? What are we doing? What are we trying to get done? If you see people asking those questions all the time, it's because we didn't spend enough time doing this. And this is basically how our system is set up. And like you said, that's a very unstable system. If there are people coming in and out of your doors all the time and you can't seem to hold on to anybody and you don't know what's really going on, it's because they feel like this. And depending on how much you are in the know, you might feel more comfortable than somebody else. If you're more down here because of your position or your job or you're an elder or a minister, you feel a little bit more stable than the person who's up here. And if they don't get answers to help them move down the line, they won't come down. They'll either stay here and then once you're up here, it's kind of like, let me just go off to the side and I'm going somewhere else. That's really hard for people to get used to and get comfortable with. Because the reality is the system should have looked more like this. We need to spend more time down here dealing with these things and articulating these things and re-going over these things to help people in our church feel more stable and help them to grow. We have to be honest that we know I have a canon within a canon. And I need help at exploring the holes in my canon. We're going to preach through some things that normally we haven't preached through. We're actually going to take some time and look at some of those minor prophets and talk about issues of justice and humanity and fighting for people's rights. Even if I don't agree with everything that you do in your life, you're still a human being. And the prophets tell me that I need to stand up for you. We're going to do that. We're going to look at our canon. I know that big scary book at the end that has all that mythical language. We're actually going to talk about it. Uh, Revelations, by the way. We're, we're actually going to deal with that. I might not know what all the beasts are and all the lampstands stand for and all the sevens that keep coming up or the six, but we're going to figure it out. I'm going to take a couple months. The church is going to give me a paid sabbatical. I'm going to do some research and I'm going to come back and preach through Revelation for three weeks because that's about all anybody can handle. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you, don't do that whole book at once. That's just not good for anybody. It's too much. And then as a church, we're actually going to sit down and talk about what it is we really value. We say that we value certain things, but do we, do we really value those? 
Do our systems reflect that value? Do our programs support those values? Or do we just have a whole bunch of programs and nobody knows what they're for? And they're not connected to anything. But if we don't begin to do these things, we'll continue to use language like, oh, that's just a conservative church. That's a liberal church. And it actually means very little. In many cases, it means nothing. Because the very church that you think is conservative might think that they're liberal. Or the church you think is liberal might think they're conservative. And oftentimes we're talking about things that we don't know enough about because we really don't know what their canon is. We just know what we see based on their programs. And here's the really amazing part about once you figure this out. Once you really get this solidified, it'll change all the rest of this because you'll know what you really need to do. And churches that work from this place, they're more comfortable at changing programs because they know their programs, the, the job of the program is to support this. It was never the job of this to support that. If I know that our job and where we exist and these are our values, then we align everything to do that and to accomplish that. But if all I'm trying to do is get programs to make people happy and make them satisfied, and we don't even know why or how or what the end goal is, we're just a church that's doing a whole bunch of stuff. All right, I want to stop there and open up for questions. Anybody have any questions, comments, concerns? Hopefully nobody goes back to the church. Don't try to just go in and drop this on anybody. Let me give you that warning. <laughs> do not do that. It will not go well for you. Unless you're like the senior pastor, you're the only person there. You can make that call. Other than that, don't do that. Yes. I just want to say thank you. I think this has been an interesting and stimulating session. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Anyone else have any questions, <coughs> comments, concerns? So what do I do with this now if I don't go back and try to... Great question. So this is what I, this is what I would start with to do. Start asking these questions. I'm, when I say don't go back and just try to like, don't go back and just try to tell everybody that they're wrong and they can figure it out. Start asking those questions. And, and I'm being serious. You, we, you need to know what's, what's down here at your church. You definitely at least need to get to here and get them to start working down here. And, and here's part of the reason why it's going to be critical, like, in the church overall of just knowing what these are. Oftentimes as churches, we make decisions to make people comfortable because we don't like problems. Churches are, we just don't like conflict. That's just normal. But the problem is we're actually producing the majority of our own conflict because we won't do this. And we keep just doing this. We think if I just keep adding programs, I'll satisfy what people really need. And what people really need is to stop being unstable. <laughs> we keep making them more and more unstable, and we think that we're actually making them more and more stable. It's actually we're doing the opposite to them. And they feel it. That's why the program never lasts for long, and it never keeps them fully engaged. And they're asking you to answer the bigger questions, and we keep saying, well, let's just give them a program. Well, you know, we have all these single mothers in here, so let's start a young single mothers class, and hopefully that'll satisfy their problem. And that's really not what they want. It helps for a while, because it feels like you heard them. But what they're really asking is, what's really going on down here? Or you're like, we got all these single people, you know, they need to get married, we're going to start a young singles ministry. <laughs> Anybody been there? <laughs> So we decide that we'll program our way out of problems. But guess what happens sooner or later? 
that new ministry you just added needs a budget. It needs somebody to support it. It needs volunteers. And then all you did was take people that were already in one ministry and moved them over to another one. And you just keep adding and adding things. And guess what happens? At the end of the year, when you have to redo that budget, somebody, and so this is usually how church budgets go. If this is your church, you know, don't raise your hand. We're just going to, I need everybody to cut their budget by 5%. That's how we do budgets. Because we got all these new programs now. So we just need everybody to make a cut to be equal. Who does that in business? Nobody does that. You make budget decisions based on what's effective and what you're trying to accomplish. You make decisions based on what's here, not based on what's going on up here. And so our churches make really bad budgetary decisions and volunteer decisions because we don't deal with these things. And we make ourselves less effective as opposed to more effective. And so we're wondering why we can't get things done at a great level or at a high scale or a great effectiveness. It's because we don't do this. We just add another program after program after program after program. And then sooner or later, you look at the budget, it's like, we've got 30 programs. And nobody knows what even all of them do. We don't even know who runs all of them. There are programs on our budgets probably right now that have money in them. We don't even know who's over them. We, we have programs. We don't even know how they got started anymore. They've been there so long. And then we're wondering why people aren't connected. It's because we haven't answered these for them. So that's where I would start. Start getting people to answer. And honestly, and I'm going to be honest, this is going to be hard because many times they haven't thought through this. So talking to ministers and elders and just say, like, what are the really the core values of our church? What are, if it came down to it, what are the three or four things that are really core to us being who we are, who God has called us to be? And they should be able to answer that. And if they don't know how to answer that, then that's where you're going to like, well, we kind of need to think through that because if not, we're just going to keep adding things that, may not align with this. So that's where I would start. Just start asking questions, getting people to answer some of those questions. That is a really good question. Thank you. Anyone else? I think with kind of piggybacking on that, and I think that's this is a helpful model and helpful suggestion. Um, have you found some questions that are helpful to help people kind of get at values or to get at the values? Because again, like we haven't examined those. So if you just run in and say, um, what is it that you value that's creating this system, right? That's not helpful. Um, what are, like, if you think about what are some of those questions that can yeah, help yeah. open that door? Okay, some really practical questions that will open the, that will, depending on the right person. So let me, let me say that right here. Uh, there has to be, you need to have these conversations, obviously, with the right elders or with the right leaders in your church. Some people are, you know, they might not take this well. And you're going to have to be gentle with them. So you might actually start with kind of the exercise that we did with finding out their canon within the canon or getting your leaders as a whole. So if you're a church leader in here or if you're a minister in here, doing this exercise with your elders together or your ministry staff together opens up a lot of doors. You begin to see how they see the world and how they see scripture, and how they see church functioning. That's really important. That, that's a good place to start. The second thing that's really helpful, and this is probably the hardest thing that churches probably don't do enough in terms of church leaders that we probably should do better. We usually just don't get to hang out together. We used to get together when it's only business. And that's the only time that we ever congregate and talk about things is we're talking about what needs to get done. The truth is, I really don't know how you see the world because I don't spend enough time with you and how you see the world. And so all these questions seem like just random questions out of nowhere and I think you have an angle on me. 
because we don't spend enough time together. So we might need to sit down and go to coffee or get together for breakfast or lunch or something and have these dialogues. We're going to have to make some personal space time. Another thing that's really helpful, stop having ministers and elders meetings always at the office in the, court, in the conference room. If you want to talk about things that really matter, stop meeting in that space because that space is set up for business and you will find yourself defaulting to business. If you meet in homes, meet out to breakfast somewhere, go to Cracker Barrel, Denny's, whatever, or if you meet just, you know, in an open space, it produces a different environment. Or if you just say, you know, we're going to meet at somebody's home and bring our wives. It changes the entire conversation, the entire atmosphere. If you constantly meet around conference tables, you will find yourself defaulting to business stuff every time. And you will talk about programming budgets and you will never, honestly, I'm dead serious. Some of you are in here like, I wish I could get my elders to shepherd better. It's because you keep meeting in a boardroom. Mm -hmm. The boardroom tells them business. It just does. You have to get in different spaces to have different conversations. But then after that, when you start asking these questions, in those different environments, they'll receive them differently and they'll be able to answer them differently. Yes? I was just going to say, I uh, just kind of think about the, um, the question and everything. Um, you know, so even if you talk about the, the, talo the talos, mm -hmm. um, you know, even ask the question of, okay, I notice we say we value social justice. Like, why don't we talk about the book of Ages at all? Well, so that's a good start. So I would so, say, saying, you know, just kind of, you know, I mean, that's a that's a question, you know, if you're kind of dealing with that. Well, and so saying, I would know, open it up a little bit more. And what I so we say we value social justice. So ask that as a question. Do we actually value, I, social, do we value social justice? And then follow up that with another question. What does that mean? Yeah. Because I have a canon within a canon. So I have an assumption in my head of what social justice should look like. That might not be the canon in their head of what social justice should look like. If you're talking social justice and you're looking at Amos and they're coming to it and that's all the canon that they're working with, if this is their canon, social justice isn't even on it really. Which means that once I know what's on your canon, that I can help train, equip, and teach us to work through that. But that's often what happens, and I'm glad that you brought that up because I'm talking about a subject and I'm running it through my canon. They're not working with that canon or even, even around that canon. And so I find myself like, why aren't you getting this? And I get frustrated as the minister or as the congregant because I just assume they should get it. But that's what they're working with, unfortunately. you know that. But we're all there. Yes? I, unlike everybody else, I think this is a great model. One really practical question might be to ask after you do the what would your canon within canon be, to then turn around and ask your staff or your elders if you could only have four programs, four ministries, which one would they be? And how are they reflected in your canon? Are they reflected in your canon? And that would open the door to begin having a conversation. Are we reflecting the values of the end that we claim? Perfect, yes. And I like how you presented that. What, let's talk about Do they reflect that? That's exactly perfect. And the reason these things start happening, honestly, you'll see the growth <laughs> in your church in terms of relational. I'm not going to promise you that you're going to go from a congregation of whatever to whatever. Can't do that for you. But it doesn't matter if you're a liberal or conservative church. I, I want you to know that that's not the fix. The truth of the matter is being conservative liberal church is not the problem. 
the problem is not recognizing the shortcomings and flaws within our hermeneutic approach and not being willing to address them, becoming a more unbalanced church. That's really the problem. But we haven't decided, we don't think that that was the problem. We never were expecting that that would be the problem. We thought that I just need to change some programs and become more conservative. We need to add an instrumental service to get young people here. I'll tell you right now, it won't work. If you don't fix your telos, they're not coming. You know what, we just need to get women up engaged because women are getting frustrated, won't fix the problem. You know, or we just need to go back to what we used to do back in the 50s and 60s. There is no going back, and going back, it might have been great for you, it wasn't great for everybody. Amen. That's just reality. But we tell ourselves that if I do this programmatically, I'll fix it. You won't ever fix it with a program or any set of programs. Won't happen. All right, I've kept you guys over a little bit, so let me go ahead and pray, and we'll be dismissed. If you want to talk to me afterwards, I'll be up here. Uh, Heavenly Father, God, we are so thankful. God, we're thankful that your word still inspires us, still creates new life within us. But God, we're thankful that you are present, your spirit is present, and it drives us to seek you. So God, help us to seek you more fully. God, help us to be aware of our canon, the holes in our canon, the limitations of our canon, and even the limitations that our canon has on how we view you and the things that you call us to be. And so, God, help us to be open to revising our own views. Help us to be open to being challenged in our thoughts and our thinking, and even in our programs and our ministries at churches. God, I ask that you bless everyone in this space, that you continue to watch over us and care for us. And in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. Thank you so much. Thank you, Joshua.